We'd love to have them be a part. We have going on their Vine Kids time. Also, if you have fifth, sixth, or seventh graders, we've got a great opportunity for them out there in front of our little foyer there. We'd love for you to be a part of what we have going on. Miss Katie's going to open that door and walk y'all right out. Perfecto. Man. So for those of you that have been here, you've been on this journey with us. Uh, we've, we started the Gospel of John some 30 weeks ago, and we've kind of made this commitment, and we, we like to teach Scripture this way. We've made this commitment to kind of walk through every piece, even the ones that are challenging, even the ones we don't know what to do with. We, we want to walk through them and explore them and look at God's Word in its sort of holistic context, and, and we love that picture. And so, what's the problem? Are you pointing to your beard or to me? Are we good? Awesome. Okay, good. Um, we've made this commitment. I was just going, look at my beard, man. I can see it from here. It's really, really awesome. Great job growing that thing well. Um, we've made this commitment to walking through Scripture this way, and we really love it. We want you to fall in love with God's Word. Like our entire heartbeat as a church is that you would fall in love with God's Word. That would change you. Um, it, will, it will change the way that you see the world, relationships, people, things. We are less concerned about your desire to come back as we are with you falling in love with God's Word, and we love to teach Scripture that way. And so we're into week 30 of this Gospel of John, this exploration, and we found ourselves in a place where things have shifted. Now remember, John is not concerned necessarily with telling the historical life of Jesus, right? The other Gospels sort of have this <clears throat> chronological picture the historicity of Christ's life. John is concerned with you knowing and his readers knowing that Jesus is God. He's concerned with the deity of Christ. And so we have to understand that from the onset. The majority of John's gospel is getting us to the last week of Christ and the cross and the resurrection. And so the tide has turned. Seven chapters in, the tide has turned. Jesus is no longer this wandering rabbi that has sort of caught the attention of people he has now got this worldly anger that is going on against him. The, the leaders in Jerusalem want him dead. Uh, they don't like what he's doing. They don't like the way he is threatening their way of life. And they don't like the fact that he is calling himself God, all right, which is going to be a major point of contention that we've seen with Jesus and the Pharisees. And that's come to a head. And so Jesus is staying away from Jerusalem, where all of this sort of anger is coming from. And he's out in the uh, Galilean countryside, which is way up to the north. And he's just doing the things that he does, going around and, and he's doing ministry and he's healing the sick and he's speaking to the people and he's laying on hands and he's doing all things that Jesus does. And his brothers come to him, all right? He's got a bunch of brothers and they come to him and they say, listen, you've got to go down to Jerusalem because your message is not going to be heard way up here to the sort of farmers that made up Galilee, right? You need to go down to the city where the stage is bigger. And it's a perfect opportunity because the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the three festivals where people traveled down, it's called a pilgrimage festival. They would travel down Jerusalem once a year and they would celebrate three different festivals. And this one, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths was coming up and it was a celebration of God's provision. It was a celebration of the, the first fruits of the harvest. And they're saying, look, everybody's going to be there. Go down and do your miracles there, right? Where the stage is bigger. And they went to Jesus and, and said that because they were like the people. They believed in Jesus, the miracle man, but they didn't necessarily believe in Jesus, the son of God. In fact, John's gospel tells us that even his brothers didn't believe in him. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, listen, my time has not yet come. So you go to the festival and I'm going to stay here for a little while. So they go ahead and Jesus follows him a few days later at a distance and he kind of lurks around for about a few days. And then about day three, he shows up at the temple courts and he begins to teach. And we spent three weeks 
looking at Jesus teaching in the temple courts and the encounters that he was having with the Pharisees and the dialogue and the debates and the, the sort of declarations that Jesus was making. And we explored those things uh, for three weeks. And then last week we came on the last day of the festival. It was the eighth day. The festival was coming to a close and all the people gather and they have this one giant massive worship service. And it's a day-long deal and they'll sacrifice and they'll pray and they'll read the law and they'll do all these things. And Jesus was there and the whole crowd is there. It's not just the temple courts. It's, it's everybody that came in town from all the surrounding countryside and places to, that pilgrimed in. And Jesus stands up. And in chapter 7, right, we looked at this last week. In chapter 7, he stands up and he sort of makes this claim. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, streams of living water will flow from them. And we talked about this at length yesterday or last week. Essentially, Jesus is saying he's giving them an invitation to come right? And to have salvation through him and to have the power of the Holy Spirit that will flow through them. And I mean, the Pharisees have had enough of this Jesus and they're furious and they've tried to seize him and they can't. They've tried to arrest him and they can't. And they're at wit's end. And we're going to pick up today at the last little sort of debacle that happens to the Pharisees, and that's going to carry us into chapter 8. But you've got to keep in mind, Jesus, at the end of this festival, the Pharisees are furious. They can't seem to arrest Jesus, and he just keeps telling everybody that he is God, right? And so the leaders are losing their minds, and this is all leading Jesus to essentially what will be the cross. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 7. We're going to finish up 45 down through 8, and then we're going to jump into this next story. And so um, they'll, they'll kind of go hand in hand a little bit, and I'll kind of show you what we're talking about. So let's take a moment, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, that it is timeless, that it is living and active. I thank you that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. I thank you, God, that you have um, given us this word, this tool, this presence, this love letter um, as an expression of your incredible love for us. Lord, I pray that you would teach us and reveal truth to us this morning. Lord, we can't understand a thing apart from your revelation. Lord, your word is not something that we discover. It's something that you reveal to us. And so we ask that you would teach our hearts. Take just a moment right where you sit and just sort of ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever that means, however you need to say that, just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. <clears throat> we do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. That everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning is not about you. It's not about me. It's about people that are gathered here in the presence of the living God. Pray for somebody else. Pray for your husband or your wife or your kids or your friend or your neighbor. Or even if you don't know that person that's sitting right beside you, just pray that God would move in them. Pray that God would draw them closer to him. Pray for somebody else this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to be glorified, to teach us, to instruct our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> so Jesus has stood up. He has made that proclamation in front of what is most likely thousands and thousands of people. He even has to shout. They said that he has to stand up and shout it. He, he proclaims that if you believe in him, you'll have streams of living water. And we explored this last week about the Old Testament connection and how powerful that would have been for an old, a Jewish audience to hear. And the invitation that Jesus was giving to people about salvation 
and about having the Holy Spirit dwell in them and flow from them. And it was just crazy, powerful stuff. So let's look at verse 45. We'll go down through 52, and then we'll pick up the second part of that in a minute. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked him, why did you not bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of us rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? And they replied, Are you too from Galilee? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So in order to kind of understand this, you've got to remember one of the things that happened last week. So Jesus is teaching in the crowds, right? This is before that last day. And the Pharisees are furious because Jesus essentially has said that I came from the Father. And where I came from, you cannot come. He essentially is saying, I am God, right? And you don't know me because you don't know God. And they get so angry, they try and seize him. But John tells us that no one even laid a hand on him. And it wasn't like Jesus was magic. They just literally couldn't do it because God would not allow it. And the crowd, when they saw this, the Pharisees wanting to seize Jesus and unable to do it, they were amazed. And John tells us that some of them put their faith in Jesus. And when the Pharisees saw that people were whispering about Jesus and putting their faith in him, they got even more angry and they went and got the armed temple guards. The temple guards, they carried swords and weapons because they were in charge of making sure that all the relics of the temple stayed safe. And they were in charge of basically keeping the peace of all the sort of temple ongoings. And so they went and got, with the permission of the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, got the, the temple guards, and they took him and they said, arrest this man. And the temple guards went to Jesus, and John tells us that they could not lay a hand on him either because his time had not yet come. So a few days go by, and Jesus is still teaching, and the the Pharisees can't seize him. The armed guards can't seize him. And Jesus stands up on the last day, and he makes this incredible proclamation. And the crowds disperse, and the festival's over. And the guards go back to the leaders, right? The temple guards go back into the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they ask him, why did you not bring him in? We sent you out there to capture Jesus, right? He's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. We gave you the authority. Why didn't you bring him in? And their response is this. No one ever spoke the way this man does. Right? Not to mention that they just couldn't capture him. But no one spoke with this authority. Right? These words is what they're saying. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of lose their mind. They say, did he deceive you also? Remember, because they believe that Jesus was this great deceiver. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees, has any of us been deceived? In other words, have any of the educated or smart or people that are sort of in charge and looking at these guards who they thought were sort of below them, right? Working class people. Hey, look at us. The rulers, the authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Have any of us believed in this Jesus? No, right? But look at that mob out there. That uneducated crowd is essentially what they're saying. Look at that crowd, right? They know nothing of the law. They're uneducated. Essentially, they're dumb. There's a curse on them. That's why they're believing. In other words, looking at these guards going, you guys are stupid, right? And then we hear a really familiar voice. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, 
and who is one of their own, ask, does our law condemn anyone without hearing him to find out what he is doing? Now, remember Nicodemus, chapter 3. Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. You remember that? This was weeks and weeks ago. And they have this conversation about what it means to be born again. And Nicodemus is wrestling with this, and he asks if he crawl back into your mother's womb. That whole, remember that whole deal? Well, Nicodemus, we learn in chapter 3, is a Pharisee, and he's one of the rulers on the Sanhedrin. Now, just as a quick recap, there were five ruling parties in sort of um, Israel's ruling classes, right? There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Essenes, and the Zealots, and they all had different roles. The two larger parties were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they made up the Jewish ruling council, which is about 70 or 71, depending on what you read, people that made all the religious and sort of political decisions for Israel as a nation. Now, they were under Roman occupation, but the Romans allowed them to self-govern as long as they kind of kept the Roman law as well. The Sadducees were aristocrats. They were super, super wealthy. They, were, they came from old money, and they were from the right families, and they held the majority of the seats, including chief priests and high priests. The Pharisees were more of the people, but they were religiously trained keepers of the law. Most of them had gone to school for most of their entire lives. They could recite from memory all of the law. They believed to be the moral high ground of all the sort of uh, divisions of the uh, Jewish ruling kind of parties. They felt like they were morally correct. They kept the law. They knew the law. Um, Well, we know that Nicodemus was one of them, and he was on the Sanhedrin. Not all the Pharisees were all in the Sanhedrin. There's only a handful of them. There's only 70 seats and only a handful of them went to Pharisees, but Nicodemus was one, which means he was kind of like a modern day senator, if you will. He was educated. He was of the people, right? And he sat on this council and he pipes up one of their own. He pipes up, right? Because they had just gone off yelling at these guards saying, none of us believe in Jesus. And Nicodemus says, wait, Has our law, right, does it condemn anyone without hearing what he is doing? In other words, we are claiming to know the law. You just told these soldiers, right, that that crazy dumb mob, that none of them know the law, and yet we're doing the opposite of what the law says. And they have the most incredible response ever. Are you from Galilee too? Right, look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now, understand that it's like, it literally is a line of complete immaturity, right? It's like if someone said to you, hey, don't rob that bank, it's against the law. And then they said to you, what are you like, Mr. Sheriff, right? All of a sudden, Mr. Sheriff, not gonna rob the bank. That's exactly what they're doing. He said, does our law not say that we can't do that? They go, what are you from Galilee too? You know, like that's the best response they've got. Like you're from where he is, huh? Yeah, Mr. Sheriff guy. I mean, this is how desperate they were to entrap Jesus. And they said, look into it. A prophet doesn't come from Galilee. Well, they all knew that. Jesus from Bethlehem. But they were looking for anything that they could. And so they just make fun of Nicodemus and sort of shout him down. But you got to understand, tensions are incredibly high. John is showing us that the hatred for Jesus has reached this elevated level to the point where now they're going to do anything they can to get him. They can't seize him on their own. They can't use the guards to get him. They're bending the law if they need to. And now we're going to see in just a few seconds that they're going to try and trap him. They're going to figure out anything they can do. And what John is showing us is that the religious tide is turned against Jesus. And ultimately, this is going to take Jesus to his death on God's terms, right? The way that God has orchestrated redemptive history. So let's keep going. So chapter 8 begins, actually, 753 begins into chapter 8, and the festival is over and some time has passed. 
We're not quite sure how much time. Remember, John is not as interested in talking chronology as he is telling story. And so something has, time has transpired to where things have kind of calmed down a little bit. But the tensions are still high, and the Pharisees are going to try and trap Jesus again by bending the law in a very famous story that most of us have heard of where a woman is caught in the act of adultery, and the Pharisees are going to try and use her as their pawn. So let's take a look at that, uh, keeping in mind kind of what's unfolded over the past uh, week at this festival. Then each went to their own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and as Jesus said, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. No, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. So some time has passed, but the transition from chapter 7 to chapter 8 is the people all went home. So the festival's over, and remember, most of the festival goers are pilgrims. They traveled to Jerusalem, and they all return home. But Jesus doesn't go back to Galilee. He just goes to the Mount of Olives, where most likely several days go by. I mean, we don't really know how much time goes by, but enough to where Jesus goes back into the temple courts, the very place where the Jewish leaders are trying to kill and capture him, but they can do nothing. So he goes back into those temple courts at dawn. All right, he gets up in the morning, he goes back there, and he begins to teach, and people just gather around him, and the Pharisees and Sadducees can do nothing. And I don't think you understand how amazing this is. They literally cannot touch Jesus. God is preventing it. Right? I mean, they were physically capable, but God is preventing the seizing of Jesus until the perfect time in redemptive history when God will release voluntarily the life of Christ to humanity. That humanity doesn't seize Jesus against his will. God releases his son voluntarily as a sacrifice for our sin. And this, I will get into later, is incredibly important theologically, right? That we don't overthrow and overcome God, but God voluntarily lays his life down to redeem our brokenness. And not until that perfect time. And so they can't touch Jesus. And so he goes back a day, two days, three days, five days, we don't know later, and he sits and he just begins to teach in the morning. And they're all gathered there, people from all that live in Jerusalem, all walks of life, that are there doing temple business or whatever, they're just listening to Jesus teach. And they bring, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they bring a woman who is, as we learn in verse 4, who is caught in the act of adultery, right? Which is fascinating, right? How you catch someone in the act of adultery and seem to only come up with the woman. Um, somewhere, the gentleman who was a part of this scenario, nowhere to be found. It's why the whole thing is a setup. It's a trap. 
right? They probably set the whole thing up. They're trying to figure out different ways to capture Jesus. And so they bring this woman. The man is not there. Takes two to tango. He's gone. She's here. And they say, teacher, which is more of an insult than it is a real term of teacher, right? Because they're basically going to put into the test. They're going, oh, hey, super teacher, right? Got one for you. We caught this woman who you can see standing here in front of this crowd, which is probably a couple of dozen, if not bigger than that, people, and with the leaders all gathered around. We caught her. We got her. She was in the act of, you know, adultery. The law says, law of Moses, I remind you, says we should stone her. What do you say? And John even tells us the setup. John says they're trying to trap her because it's a trap on both sides, right? Deuteronomy 22 doesn't actually say that you should stone a woman who's caught in adultery. What Deuteronomy 22 really says is if a man takes a virgin who is pledged to be married to another man, right, and he lays with her, then you take her and him outside of town, you kill him both, which is still pretty harsh. However, that's what it says. It doesn't say anything about the single woman here and no guy. They've sort of twisted it around. But the idea is that if Jesus says don't kill her, then he would be going against the law, right? So therefore, they would be able to discredit him as a teacher and call him a blasphemer, and they would be able to then arrest him without the people going crazy, right? So they want Jesus to say, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real dilemma. And if I say don't kill her, then I'm breaking the law myself, what they're trying to get him to do. But the other side of that is the Israelites were under Roman rule. And under Roman rule, they weren't allowed to carry out a single death sentence. They didn't have that right. It's why Jesus couldn't be killed by the Jews themselves. He had to go before Pilate and Herod. Pilate had to release him and wash his hands of him as the people cried. And Pilate gave Jesus to the Jews as a gift to have him executed. It was his doing, his releasing that allowed the Jews to actually kill Jesus because they couldn't carry out a death sentence. So if Jesus says to the Pharisees, yes, that's what the law says, kill her, then they would go off and they would tell the Romans that Jesus had executed death sentences and the Romans would seize Jesus and he would be caught. Either way, right? It's uh, a trap. It is, it is a trap. And of course, Jesus is Jesus. And so he doesn't get trapped. But this woman's standing there and they say, what do you do? And Jesus does the most remarkable thing. He just bends down and he draws in the dirt. He just draws in the dirt. He says he writes. And I've read so many things about what Jesus might possibly be writing in the dirt. And I think it is a complete missing of the point. I don't think it matters. I actually have an entire book, a volume that is written on the possibilities of what Jesus was writing in the dirt in John 8. Some say he was writing out the Shema, he was writing out all these things. It's all speculation and it doesn't matter. What matters, I think, is that Jesus was showing them that he was not threatened. He just hears them and he bends down and he just starts drawing, writing. And it angers him, actually. You know what they say? They actually keep questioning him. Jesus bent down. He started to ride in the ground with his finger. But they kept questioning him, which means that for some time, Jesus just sat there drawing in the dirt. Like, I'm not threatened by you. The crowd is listening, pins and needles. And the Pharisees saying, what are you going to do, teacher? Are you going to tell us to kill her and obey the law? Or are you going to let her be free and disobey the law? They kept questioning Jesus. So he stands up. And I imagine 
all this happening slowly, right? I don't have any idea, but it seems like it would happen where Jesus sort of takes his time because they're getting impatient. He stands up and he looks at them all gathered there and he says, okay, if any of you, right, is without sin, throw a rock at her. Go ahead. I mean, seriously, if any of you that are gathered here that brought her here is without sin, throw your rock. And then it says he bends back down and he begins to ride in the dirt again. Again, I'm not threatened by you. And it says one by one, people just start to leave, starting with the oldest, right? And it's, a, it's actually a, a kind of a play on wisdom. Those that are the oldest and the most wise get what Jesus had just done. And they realize that they're not totally sinless and they don't want to be the first to throw the rock, right? And so they just leave. And it says one by one by one, everyone left until it was just Jesus and her. Which means even the people that were gathered there to hear his teaching slowly disappeared from the temple courts, which is unheard of. The temple courts were full all the time. Everybody leaves. And it's just this woman that had been caught in this act maybe even trapped, but caught in this act, and Jesus. It says he straightens up again, which means he gets up again. And this time he looks at her and he says, woman, right? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I. And he says, go and leave your life of sin. I really don't like the story. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for it, but it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, then I don't think you're hearing what's actually going on here. I don't think you're imagining this scenario well enough. But there's a whole lot in here that doesn't sit well with me, that actually brings me to a place of having this sort of visceral feeling of uncomfortability. And I can kind of show it to you in about four questions in a statement. I'll do it kind of quickly because I want you to understand this perspective or this story from a couple of different perspectives, but I really want you to understand it from the perspective of this woman, right? Because really what she is is she's a pawn. She's just a tool for the Pharisees to try and trap Jesus. Essentially, she's a throwaway, but it, she's a person, a real person. And the reason this story is incredibly uncomfortable to me is that, and I'll tell you this in a moment, is that I think that we're more like her and more like the Pharisees that brought her there than we really care to admit. But think about this to the point of view of her for just a few moments. Can you imagine being that exposed? So think about your life for a minute. The worst thing that maybe you've ever done. Let's say in this woman's life it was adultery. Imagine your worst scenario. The worst sin, struggle, thing, failure, whatever it is, even thought process. Imagine that being exposed. And not just exposed, but on public display as a teaching tool for other people. So not just, hey, we caught you doing this wrong, but hey, we caught you doing this wrong and we're going to take you to Congress. And we're going to stand you there in front of all the senators and we're going to explain to them what adultery is and what you were doing and how we caught you. And we're going to put your life on display and then we're going to ask this other group of people whether or not you should essentially be killed. We're going to talk about your sin. We're going to explain the story behind it. And we're going to tell the world what it is that you want no one to know. 
which on some level, adultery aside, having our sin exposed like that to the world is petrifying, right? Like what if I stood here on a Sunday morning and you shared your deepest secret of failure and I told everybody, this is what this person's done. What do we think we should do with them? We'll take questions, right? Go ahead, ask away. I mean, that kind of exposure is petrifying. Have you, can you imagine being that exposed? Can you imagine, second question is, being that alone? I mean, here you are, marched in by the religious and moral elite, people that you've looked up to your whole life that have done nothing wrong. You believe that because they told you that. The Pharisees believed they were sinless. They kept the law to a T, and the Sadducees were aristocrats. They were better than everyone. And they marched you in, and they stood you up in front of Jesus, who you had heard about, who had done incredible things, who had fed 5,000, who had healed a guy on the Sabbath, who just a week or so was here earlier doing miracles in the city during the festival and talking to the Pharisees. And you're standing there in front of them alone, and you most likely are the only woman in the entire area. And the partner that you had in this, gone. Have you ever been that alone in your life? I mean, truly that exposed and alone. Nobody cares about her. She literally is a pawn. They're using her as a tool to try and get Jesus. And she is up there with all of her very real sin exposed. No advocate, no attorney. No one is going to ask her to plead her side because they don't care. And as a patriarchal society, they don't even want to hear her voice anyway. You're just there as everybody points and says, look at what you did. I've known loneliness. I have not ever known loneliness like that. Can you imagine being that alone? Can you imagine being that afraid? Think about this. She's learning perhaps for the very first time because we just learned in chapter 7, the crowd does not know the law and they've manipulated the law anyway. So there's no way this woman would have known it even if she did know the law. But they are telling her as she stands there that the law of Moses said she should die. And not just die, but die by having people throw rocks at you. She's exposed She's alone, and she just learned that this crowd may have permission to walk her outside of the city and throw rocks at her until she's unconscious and then bleeds to death. That's pretty real fear, right? I mean, I'm afraid of a lot of things. Don't care so much for snakes, right? Spiders that have any kind of hair on them at all, out with me. Like, we're not doing that, right? Like, any of those little, uh-uh, not any hair. I'm afraid of failing financially. I'm afraid of a lot of things. But I'm not afraid of being walked out of here and having you all throw rocks at me until I die. I don't know that kind of fear. I've never known fear like that. And on top of it, for something that I know I've done wrong, it's not like she's innocent. And she knows that. She's exposed. She's alone. She's afraid. And then finally, can you imagine being that vulnerable? So her entire life holds in the balance, is being held in the balance by one guy, one man, one person. 
She has no advocate, no one speaking for her, no way to tell her story. Even though she's known what she's done is wrong, still no way to tell her side. They enticed me, they tricked me, they did whatever. No one's asking her any questions. It's not a trial for her. It's a trial for Jesus. And her entire life and breath and existence hinges on whether or not Jesus is going to stand up for her or whether he's going to not. That vulnerability is brutal because most of us hate being vulnerable. We have been trained and taught to do whatever it takes on our own to protect ourselves at all costs, lie, cheat, steal, do whatever we need to do to make sure you avoid that kind of vulnerability. She's got nothing. She's exposed. She's alone. She's afraid and she's vulnerable and she is a real person with a heartbeat that is sitting in the worst of her life and everybody can see it. And it doesn't just make me uncomfortable because that part of the story is true. What makes me uncomfortable is that I think I'm more like her than I care to admit. And what makes me really uncomfortable is I think I'm more like the Pharisees that brought her there than I care to admit as well. And I think so are you. This woman... She's got a lot of very real fears, a lot of fears that revolve around her own sin, being exposed, being vulnerable. I think we could echo a lot of those things. There's a huge part of us that have done things in our life that we don't want anybody to know about. Maybe they were when we were young. Maybe they were last night. I don't have any idea, but I'm guessing there are parts of your life or maybe even your thought life. Adultery aside, just pick anything that you don't want another human being to know you've thought or done. Things you're not proud of, things that you're ashamed of things that you've thought when you're alone that you wish would not go into your mind. We're petrified of having those things on full display. We're petrified of that vulnerability. But we've all engaged in sin. And all that sin leads us to the same place, which is brokenness and fear and loneliness. Because we know that we have done something that has let people and or the Lord, we failed them. And so what do we do? We cover it up. We act in secret. We do whatever we can to brush those things up so that we don't have to have them exposed. And there's a part of us that doesn't want to experience what this woman's experience, which is exposure, vulnerability, fear, and loneliness. We'll do anything to avoid those things. But the truth is we've done things in our life that if exposed would be petrifying. We're a lot like her. Maybe not to the extent of what we've done, but they're there. The Pharisees are kind of funny in this story, too, because they think they're morally perfect. But none of them will actually say it out loud because Jesus actually confronts them on it. But they bring this woman who's caught in this act of adultery to Jesus. And they basically have created a life out of making a moral high ground where as long as they stay on this moral high ground, they can lob their judgment at people that are below them. And the truth is Christians have perfected this art. We in this room have perfected the art of stepping up on whatever our monthly moral soapbox is and lobbing judgment on people, right? Because we're standing on whatever this season's moral soapbox is while ignoring the rest of the real sin that we have as that broken woman in our life. Because we're great at judging ourselves on our intents and other people on their actions. And so we stand on whatever moral soapbox we have, 
And we lob our judgment on the world, all the while knowing full well the deepest, darkest recesses of our heart. We are exactly like the sinful woman. But if we lob judgment first, then we seem morally less reprehensible. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They were sinful. They were even bending the law now. Nicodemus even told them that earlier. But they thought if they could just bend it enough to not be adulterers, then they could lob their judgment bombs and people would look at them a little different. They'd just look at them and think, hey, at least you didn't kill anybody or sleep with somebody else's wife or whatever moral judgment we think is a little bit less worse than everything else, or I didn't smoke crack, didn't kill, didn't do whatever, so I'm not that bad. You know what Jesus does? He levels the playing field, doesn't he? He looks at the Pharisees and he goes, okay, if you haven't sinned, throw a rock at her. And Jesus levels the field. And this is why I say I think that I'm like the deeply sinful woman and like the deeply sinful Pharisee. Because I've got things in my life that I'm ashamed of, that I'm embarrassed of, that I wish I never did engage in or thought about, that I'm petrified of being exposed or being vulnerable or being out there with. And so I morally try and cover them up with a bunch of other things, hoping that that distracts the world from the failure that I really am, which is how most of us live. But you know the singular truth about the Pharisees and about this woman is they had the exact same need. They needed Jesus. It was the only hope that any of them would have to escape their sin. And so Jesus looks at this woman and he says, woman, where did they go? Anybody condemn you? She says, no, sir. And he says, look, neither do I. Leave your life of sin. He doesn't say stop committing adultery. He doesn't say what you did was okay. It wasn't that bad. You're fine. He says, leave your life of sin. Jesus is the only answer for our broken, sinful lives. There is nothing else. No amount of covering these things up, hoping we're not exposed, hoping that we just won't do it one more time, and then I'll be able to get myself out of whatever this thought pattern, this thing, this actions, behavior, this thing is. If I just start today by not doing that, just start today by not thinking that, or if I just cover it up with a whole bunch of really good moral things, then maybe I can distract people and the Lord, and they'll think that I've got it together, and God will say, at least you're trying. Well, it's garbage. Because like the woman, you're caught. You are exposed. The God of the universe knows every thought that runs through your head. You are exposed and vulnerable and alone. And there is no better place to be than exposed, vulnerable, alone in the presence of Christ. As petrifying as that sounds, it is the greatest place to be because it is the only place of safety and redemption. But most of us has created a world out of living as a Pharisee. Hiding our failures and our insecurities and all of our vulnerabilities and all of our sins by standing morally and lobbing things at the world. Because somehow it makes us feel like we're just not as bad as them. Not an addict, right? Not a killer, not an adulterer. And Jesus says, well, then throw a rock at her. And one by one, the older we get, the more we realize how much we need Jesus. So here's the thing for today, right? 
I don't care what side of the spectrum you come down on on this story. I feel like I'm as much equal parts sinful Pharisee as I am sinful woman. Maybe you feel one side or the other. The need is exactly the same. We need Jesus. He is the only answer. Being exposed and vulnerable and broken in his presence is literally the greatest place we could ever be because it's the only place, place of safety and redemption and grace. Stop trying to fix your sin by being better morally in other areas. Just stand exposed before the Father and say, God, I need you to cleanse me, to free me. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Leave your life of sin. Confession, repentance, grace. This is the promise of following Jesus. That when we come to him, exposed and vulnerable, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but we believe in him and trust him as our savior. He redeems our brokenness, gives us new life, and we stand free, which means there is hope for you today. Whatever it is, whatever you lugged in here, mentally, physically, or otherwise, right? And for all of us that pretend we don't have any of it, there is hope in Christ today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to gather in this place and open your word. And I know it's a different way of looking at that story. A lot of times we want to talk about how, you know, we're all sinful and we shouldn't judge people. But the truth is, is that I kind of feel more like the woman at times in the story than I do anything else. I just, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of being exposed and I'm afraid of the own leanings of my own heart. I'm afraid of just my own sin and my thought process and the selfish, prideful, arrogant things that I have going on in my head. Like, God, I am a mess. And I just need you. And Lord, I think that a lot of us, if we're completely and totally transparent, which most of the time we don't want to be, we need you. We would just say we need you. But Father, sometimes we feel like that woman sinful. We made some choices that have led us to a place that we don't know how to get out of. We've got things that we think or we do or we look at or ideas or even behaviors that are just destroying us. And yet we've tried to cover them up and not be found out or maybe like the Pharisees, God, we've chosen a few moral high grounds to stand on and we just pretend that if I just keep trying, maybe one day this will get better. God, we'll never free ourselves from our own sin. Only you can set us free. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would bring those things to the surface of our heart that you want us just to cut loose of, that you want us to stand in vulnerability and confess to you, that you want us to acknowledge and to lay down and to be free from. God, I pray that you would expose us to yourself, that you would make us vulnerable and afraid, not afraid because we are afraid of you, but afraid because, God, it's hard just to depend on you. And so, Lord, strip our lives of all of the safeties that we've created and allow us to stand in your presence and recognize our deep need for Jesus. God, you are the only freedom that we have. And we ask this in his holy and risen and beautiful name. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Since